Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be weighing up the pros and cons of a four-day working week. We'll be joined by the leaders of two charities which have fully embraced the idea. And I don't think it will be too much of a spoiler to reveal that so far it has been met with an overwhelmingly positive response from staff members, as well as demonstrating that productivity can be sustained through those reduced hours. There have also been some downsides, so it will be interesting to hear how they have combated those and also just generally to hear how they adapted. But before we get to that, what's been going on on the news desk, Andy? Well, I mean, the keen news watchers will be well aware that we've just had the autumn statement, Mm -hmm. one of the largest political set pieces of the year. News watchers always get very excited about what's going to be in the autumn statement. You always get bags of stuff beforehand, organisations calling for the things that they want to see the Chancellor do. And this year, it turned out to be a bit of a damp squib for the voluntary sector, it has to be said. In the lead up to the autumn statement, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations was spearheading a big campaign that was backed by more than 1,400 charities where they were calling for a significant uplift in the amount of money that is offered to charities that are involved in public service delivery contracts. That didn't get a mention. The voluntary sector wasn't mentioned at all, really, apart from a few piecemeal mentions of specific bits of money for certain types of organisation. But I think overall, charities came away feeling a bit deflated that the government has not really acknowledged the sector's role in the country's overall productivity. Mm, But they have increased the national living wage, haven't they? Which is obviously a great thing for workers, a great thing for low income workers, many of which are in the voluntary sector. But that's Not really great news for charity budgets, is it? It does put additional pressure on charity budgets. And obviously combined with this situation that the NCVO has already described, where you've got existing pressure on charities that are involved in public service contracts, they're not getting any uplift for that. But what they're going to see is they're going to have to pay staff more, the lowest paid people, obviously, No one could say it's a bad thing, but I think organisations would want it linked to some kind of uplift in the money that they're getting paid because it does put pressure, particularly care charities or organisations that are paying some of the lower wages. It does put pressure on those budgets and pro bono economics have actually said that they think that the trajectory that the charity sector's income was on pre-COVID is now going to be £9 billion less Um, as a result of the changes that we're seeing. So how can charities respond to that? I mean, obviously, going into their reserves is Mm. one way to counter the deficit, but that's not really sustainable. What else can be done? Could there be a sort of widespread almost strike or stronger warning to the government that they are simply not going to be able to deliver these public services based on what they're currently being given? Yeah, it puts charities in a really difficult position. They face making the choice effectively between deciding not to bid, continuing with things as they are, with pressure being on their budgets and maybe having to dip into their reserves in order to service these contracts, or just pulling out of the contracts entirely and not doing that. But then 
they will probably feel that they're not then doing the thing that they were set up to do. Exactly. So it's a really difficult choice. We have seen some charities over the years deciding not to bid on certain contracts. And it feels like unless, though, everybody takes the same stance, there's always going to be someone who will want to do that. And I know that in years gone by, unions have warned about the kind of race to the bottom where you just end up getting the lowest bidders will always be successful and they won't necessarily provide the best services, but they will provide the cheapest option. Mm. While that's still there, it does make it harder for charities to say, well, we're not going to do it in the hope that everybody else says that and then they just end up paying more through the contract. Yeah, but then what's the alternative? I mean, presumably, if these budgets are too low for charities, it's not Mm. like private contractors are going to be able to jump in and fill the gap. No, I mean, I think there are definitely elements of scale. So the big contracting organisations, the Circos, the Capitas of this world, they might be able to do it for cheaper on a larger scale than Mm. your local Age UK or whatever, doing it, you know, with just employing a handful of people. There are definitely questions there. And you might find that charities could get greater value by working better in consortium with other organisations. Again, you know, sort of looking at that question of scale. If they do it together, they might be able to do it more cheaply. But yeah, yet again, we're bringing really bad news for the sector. And I mean, talking about voice, Mm. the NCVO has been shouting loudly Mm. they're not the only ones but being backed by 1400 charities pleading with the chancellor to address this underfunding and if that's just falling on deaf ears then what hope is there really exactly i mean i think if you go back to the start of the year the spring budget there was this hundred million pounds that suddenly announced for the charity sector that came out the blue really it had been quietly lobbied for behind the scenes by some of the movers and shakers in Westminster but then it was kind of announced by Jeremy Hunt and everybody was cock-a-hoop that that was being offered by the government and maybe it's a bit of a case of well you had your time then you can get back in your box and we'll help you again. Of course the macroeconomic situation can't be ignored. The Chancellor's obviously trying to win a general election let's face it and so he's trying to offer things that are going to be sweet for the general population obviously there's been lots of tax breaks that's been well talked about you've got to fund that somehow and offering more tax breaks and also increasing the amount that you're paying through public service contracts is quite a difficult balance to have there's no magic money tree as we know so it's all about those choices now for this week's main discussion how do you feel about a four-day working week The Directory of Social Change switched permanently to a four-day week in 2021 in a change born out of COVID, with their hours condensed into four days. Friends of the Earth announced plans to move to a four-day week almost a year ago, but their employees are working five hours fewer every week for the same pay. And in October, the single-parent support charity Gingerbread followed suit with a six-month trial, again cutting weekly working hours from 35 to 30. And last year, Four Day Week Global, a company, ran a six-month trial involving 61 employers, including six charities. Waterwise was one of them. And hot off the press, Waterwise has just announced in the past few days that they are moving to a permanent four-day week. But it can't just be a case of shaving off a day of work and expecting business as usual. And we're particularly keen today to explore some of the adjustments that need to happen. 
We're very happy to be joined by two guests. First up is Victoria Benson, Chief Executive of Gingerbread, and she previously practised as a solicitor and has also worked at Macmillan. Hi, Victoria. Hello. And also with us is Miriam Turner, Co-Executive Director of Friends of the Earth. She joined Friends of the Earth in 2017 after 12 years with the sustainable flooring company Interface. Hello, Miriam. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. Good to be here. Now, presumably it's no accident that you should be trailblazers in this field when you're also one of the highest profile charities to have a top level job share that you've been doing for the last three years with your co-worker Hugh Knowles. You also have a hybrid working arrangement like many charities since the pandemic. How does the four-day week fit into your wider work flexibility drive? Well, we were really keen to look at making sure well-being could be as good as it possibly could in the organisation and that was one of the main drivers for making this change. We've always been quite innovative and flexible in how we approach things here at Friends of the Earth. So this seemed like the next logical step. And so far, so good in terms of what we're seeing and hearing from colleagues. And how does it work practically across the organisation? How do you kind of manage that four-day week process? It sounds similar to at Gingerbread. We went from 35 hours to 30 and staff selected whether they were doing either a Monday to Thursday working week or a Tuesday to Friday working week. So in practice, that means that Monday and Friday are days that less meeting heavy, bit more expansive, good for the strategic thinking and deep work. And then the core hours and organizational meetings tend to take place in that Tuesday to Thursday slot. And have you had to make any other changes in terms of the way that you work to adapt to this new setup? Yes, I think it's worth saying we did quite a lot of prep before we made the move. So we had about nine months of quite deep work and consultation with colleagues in the union across the staff body, other organizations, looking at data, looking at what had worked well or not. So we made sure that each team had really done the work thinking about how we could still provide five-day-a-week cover in very different circumstances or when teams within the organization obviously have very different remits, how we could still provide five-day cover as an organization but make sure that we could do that in a way that reduced the days that individuals took from four. So in practical terms, we did a big program of training and work around meeting cadence, meeting culture, efficiency, streamlining. And we really didn't want to press go until we felt that team leaders had confidence that their teams were ready to press the button and wouldn't just feel it's meant to be about well-being right so we didn't want it to suddenly create a huge stress of well how do I do all this work now with fewer hours so we did do quite a lot of work before that change happened to provide as much support as possible for it to be smooth and we launched that as you were saying alongside the new hybrid working policy which came in kind of post-COVID building on what we learned during that period. And Victoria, how is it working at Gingerbread? You haven't been doing this for quite as many months as Friends of the Earth has, but have you had to make big changes to how the organisation is run? So we've adopted a slightly different approach. We're in the second month now of a six-month trial. And at the end of the six months, we'll decide whether we're going to go ahead with this model, whether we're going to change it, or whether we're going to go back to a five-day week. 
We started thinking about this um, in April when the four-day week report was published. I read it and thought it looked brilliant. And like Friends of the Earth, the the main motivation was employee well-being. Um, We wanted to do as much as we can to support our staff who work extremely hard. And, you know, for gingerbread, it's often a very difficult situation because they're dealing with particularly on the front line, you know, hearing really traumatic stories from a lot of people. So we really wanted to support them as much as we can. And the other reason, of course, is that we are a charity that supports single parents. And one of our main campaigns is that we campaign for more flexible work for single parents. So it seemed a no-brainer for us to try this way of working, particularly as we have single parents in the work staff, as well as couple parents. So we set up a staff working group in the summer that started looking at the various models and they represented each of the teams across the organisation. And so they looked at how they were working and what model would work best for them. And we did look at all of the different models, but we opted to go for the same day closing across the organisation. So we close on Fridays. And the main reason for that is that staff didn't want to come back to emails that had been sent in their absence And also, you know, we we know that it would be quite tricky getting hold of people if people are away in different days. So we've opted for a Friday closure. We had to increase our daily hours slightly by half an hour a day because we wanted to maintain service delivery levels. Like Friends of the Earth, we've gone from 35 hours to 30 hours a week. We're in our second month. We're evaluating it very closely. So we've had the first month's evaluation results back and, and you know the feedback is overwhelmingly positive but we've got five more months to go. And how are you measuring productivity? Presumably you've set some sort of measurement matrix to to make sure that you are operating as well as you were or hopefully better than you were before this came into effect. I mean the key issue for us is that we offer a helpline to single parents so we needed to ensure that that the delivery levels didn't drop at all for that helpline and we we monitor the hours that they're open, the number of calls, the number of calls that are answered Um, and so far the results are overwhelmingly um, positive with us in fact answering more calls than we did for the same month last year and we also will evaluate that the quality of the calls on that helpline as well as we do a standard so 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 far it's it's working really well and we you know we're really pleased that in fact we're able to meet demand better because we've changed the helpline hours so that we can offer more helpline staff um, on the days that the helpline is traditionally busier so Monday through to Wednesday and it means that we're actually taking more calls so so for us that's you know it's, it's a huge plus. So the helpline is now closed on a Friday? It is. It's closed on a Friday. It's treated as an out-of-hours day, a Saturday and Sunday. We're always looking at opportunities to extend our helpline hours. Um, And should we be able to get the funding, it's a distinct possibility that we would be opening the helpline on Friday, Saturday and Sunday to reach those single parents who aren't able to phone our helpline during the week. I should say we already offer two evening um, helpline sessions which are there to help people who are at work, give them the opportunity to phone us out of hours as well. I think it's a really important aspect and our people team were just discussing this with me the other day that we're seeing a big increase in applications, not just in number of applications for new roles, but in diversity of candidates for new roles. And as Victoria was saying, I think it means that we can really reach people and be an effective employer for those people, for example, with caring responsibilities or other responsibilities who just might not have the traditional five-day 
five-day week available to them. That's a real plus that we've seen. Although, of course, HR have to do more work going through the applications, but that's a nice, is a good problem to have, especially when in the environmental movement, we really need to look at diversifying the whole movement and therefore diversifying the in-house staff teams of the organisations like Friends of the Earth supporting that movement. And Miriam, just to go back to that question of productivity, how are you at Friends of the Earth measuring the effect that the four-day week is having on your organisation's output? Obviously, for a lot of charities, it's not just a case of measuring widgets that are produced at the factories. For a lot of organisations, it's not as simple as that. How are you managing that? Yeah, I mean, I think how we're looking at it is are we still able to deliver the campaigns and the annual plans that we've signed off with the board before we made this move and making sure we're at least meeting or exceeding those alongside measuring through pulse surveys and other kind of in-house surveys, well-being, sickness-related absence and kind of proxies for productivity that could give us an indication there. So, for example, we've seen that turnover has dropped by about a fifth We've seen sickness-related absences fall, albeit slightly, but we're, we're still within the first year of running this. And well-being scores increase along with sense of positive work-life balance. So those are the, the kind of leading and lagging indicators that we're looking at. And then thinking about what you said about wanting to open up the environmental space to more diverse groups of people. How does the move to the four-day working week fit into your overall mission? And have you been able to identify any environmental benefits of switching to this way of work? Yeah, I think it is worth mentioning that. I mean, there have been various studies showing that for a reduction of 10% of working hours, there's about an 8.5% reduction. So almost marries up in terms of carbon and impact of travel, commute, heating offices and buildings. Of course, there's a lot of complexity depending on the structure of the organization behind those statistics. But we can safely say there will be a positive environmental impact from that kind of move. I think the bigger piece for us strategically is really around strengthening the environmental justice movement in the UK and doing that by making sure we're representing the people that we're on the side of, those people at the sharp side of the climate and nature emergencies and and being most negatively affected by that now. And that to do that effectively and authentically, we need to be a diverse staff body as well. And we're really finding that this change is bringing new people to us, which is wonderful. Victoria, just in terms of the benefits that you might have seen so far, have you, I mean, obviously, you've got a pretty small sample size so far, given that you're just in the early days of a trial, but have you seen any benefits beyond basic staff being happier because they don't have to work quite so many days? Yeah, I mean, in the recruitment campaigns that we've done in the last month, the feedback has been really positive that we offer this benefit. We'd already gone to a hybrid working model So um, we're already able to recruit from around the country and, as Miriam says, a much more diverse workforce, which which is really important to us as well. But, you know, we don't want to restrict people who are caring. We've just made an offer to a single parent for our fundraising team who's got sole care of their child. So, you know, it's really positive that we're able to recruit more people who do have such obligations. But this isn't just about parents. I mean, we've, we've seen from our first month's survey that People use the extra hours for, for a lot of different reasons, um, not just caring obligations, whether it's to catch up on household jobs, uh, whether to 
to rest um, or whether to catch up with friends or partake in a hobby. So uh, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of benefits for this. And we're really hopeful that um, in the coming months we'll, we'll be able to show evidence more that, you know, it is going to help us in recruiting really good diverse staff. Have you come across any downsides or challenges so far? Uh, yes, we have. Um, so it's the first month. We were always expecting it to feel challenging for people. I mean, I, mean, I should say that the first month survey, 97% of respondents want the trial to continue and want it to continue beyond the six months. So, you know, it's very, very positive. But we have had some of the pretext um, comments were around how challenging people were finding it, particularly on a Thursday night to stop work. Mm. You know, there was some people found it slightly overwhelming to start with. We always expected that. We spoke to other organisations and charities when we were planning this. So we knew this was going to be a challenge, but it's about supporting people to help them adapt to the new ways of working and also to put in place the organisational measures that we need to in order to assist them. So, for example, we're, we're trying to, to move to Teams as a way of communicating, using the to-do lists in Teams, allocating tasks, cutting down the length of meetings. A lot of it, this the productivity changes around meetings. But that takes a little bit of time when you're used to attending so many meetings and rocking up to you know, sitting there for an hour talking to people. So we always expected it would take a little while, but we're, we're really confident that we can work with the staff members to make this work. And actually, they want to make it work. So it's not that it's going to be a challenge. It's everybody is really, really keen to make this work. Miriam, you've been nodding along. Does a lot of that ring true to, to your experience? Yeah, I think obviously with any big change there are challenges that come with it I think our conclusion and my colleague's conclusion is that it is net positive but even when something is a net positive change it doesn't mean there aren't some things in the in the negative list right and I think one of them as Victoria has found as well is that the meeting congestion on the day's that are, in our case, the core collaboration days, as we call them. So although we did do this nine months of prep and we reviewed meeting cadence organizationally, we gave a lot of support for that to become more efficient. There are, of course, kind of teething issues with that. So I think that's one thing, the potential meeting congestion on those days that are collaboration days. So that's something that we're working with across the organization. I think the other one is... Just teams, so, you know, whether it's the media team or a team that supports activists in Northern Ireland, just making sure that teams across the organization become familiar with other teams' patterns and ways of working. And I think that at the beginning was quite difficult. It's bedding down now as people become used to it. It's a bit of a jigsaw to put all those bits together and to get familiarity of how do we work most effectively together when we're across those two days in slightly different working patterns. But there was a lot of consultation and involvement and kind of can-do attitude from all the teams across the organization to, to get to where we are. And now almost a year in, I'd love to come back and share this with you once we've done it, but we're running a, a really in-depth one year in look at hybrid working four-day week, these indices that we've been monitoring so yeah, we felt like we really needed to to have a year of it bedding in and then take a take an in-depth look. And if you're speaking to somebody in Victoria's position who's just a month in or perhaps uh, a charity leader who is considering a move to a four-day week for the first time, what would your key 
pieces of advice be? Well, it sounds like Victoria's doing it all. So I don't know <laughs> if she necessarily needs any advice. But um, I would say as much pre-work as, as possible and as much engagement as possible with different teams to allow teams to work through what the potential downsides might be and how to mitigate them as as best as possible and to go in eyes open that with any change the first few months are are bound to be bumpy as people are, are getting used to those new ways of working so I think the preparation stage as with any major organizational change project is really key and the communication clarity around that so I'd say preparation is a big thing Then I'd also say lines of communication with teams once it's launched and making sure that there are fora for things to be raised, that there are ways of addressing that. I mean, we have the union, so that's been really helpful in helping us think how to make this land as best we can. So I think that would be the second thing, kind of ongoing communication and forums for discussing how things can be improved. And Victoria, I guess the same question would be interesting to hear from you about that too. Obviously, slightly different sample size in terms of the time that you've yeah. been doing it for. But what advice would you give to other charity leaders considering this? I mean, we're, we're obviously much smaller, which makes it much easier. But um, I think the staff working group, it was a really good idea. It wasn't mine, so but it was a really good idea. It's continuing. So it continues to meet to discuss the issues and, the, and what's happening and, and the experiences of the team. And it feeds back to the the management team. So I think it is about communicating because there are going to be issues that come up. We always knew there would be issues, actually. We we kind of got to the stage where we thought, well, we've just got to now try this and then we can adapt as we go along. But I think, yeah, having the staff working group still meeting and still discussing what's happening is really, really important. Mm. Now, both of you had substantial time in the private sector before you moved into the voluntary sector. What's your view on the charity world's receptiveness to innovations like this versus that of private companies? Well, I haven't worked in the private sector for some time. I mean, I think the charity sector is more receptive to these kind of initiatives for two reasons. Firstly, employee well-being is absolutely seems more important. But also, I think when you can't give your employees um, pay rises all the time and can't recompense them in other ways, you have to be more innovative um, and for us, it's looking at other ways we, that we can ensure that they want to work for gingerbread and they enjoy working for gingerbread and that we can retain them as well, as well as attract new staff. So I think because we're not able just to give pay rises all the time, um, we do need to be more innovative. But for gingerbread, it's really important that we, we are living our values. And I know that's a phrase that's used a lot, but we campaign for single parents. And it's absolutely essential, I think, that we do some of the things that we were asking the government and employers to provide for single parents so that we can say that we, we are living our values. And, and you know, I see that I've seen that across the, the sector, actually. I'd really agree about attracting and retaining brilliant people when you might not necessarily be able to go to the levels of salary that could be possible in the private sector. There are various ways to offer compensation in different ways. And I think this is a really important one. And I think on, you know, the innovation in the private sector or or the charity sector, I think it just really depends on the individual organization. I know there are lots of private sector organizations experimenting with lots of different ways of working too. But yeah, I think overall for me, it was a way to 
make sure that we could become the kind of organization that we need to be to be most effective. So that is, who are we going to attract and retain? Who is going to find it possible to work here that might not have found it possible before? And how can we make sure that by doing that, we're delivering on our mission and strategy to support the environmental justice movement? So it's a very high level. It's extremely strategically aligned. And we see it as a key way of us actually delivering on our charitable objectives. And you are both relatively early movers in this. And that's not just within the charity sector, it's within the sort of broader workforce. I was wondering if you have any sympathy for any of the opposition to switching from five days to four as a standard. To me, I think it's a no brainer to at least try a four day working week. You know, it's so important to staff. One of the advantages that we've found from just one month is that people are saving on childcare costs. I mean, why wouldn't you want to help your, your staff do that, given that how expensive they are? Increased productivity, increased creativity, increased focus, better work-life balance. You know, that's, that's, that's what staff are telling us from one month. I, I kind of think, why? And we haven't seen a drop in productivity. Like Friends of the Earth, we're delivering our original operational plans this year. You know, we will exceed and reach all of our KPIs, but we'll do that on four days a week. So why wouldn't you try it? It's it's a no brainer to me. And it's all just come out of the pandemic, really, hasn't it? You've both put forward such a strong case. It's like, why on earth did we not think about doing this earlier? Yeah, I mean, the four day working week report was very persuasive. And that's what I read originally that I thought, oh, I'm, I think we should try this. You know, I think there's lots of evidence out there if people are sceptical about productivity levels. Um, which, of course, is the, the question that people always ask about, you know, why are you paying people the same? Won't productivity drop? And of course, it shouldn't. I mean, it's not an easy process, but, I, you know, I think it, it shouldn't drop. Um, and we haven't seen any evidence of it dropping. Exactly. And I think, um, as you were saying, Victoria, in the sector that we're working with, we're both campaigning and on, you know, on different issues. But a lot of the content and in our case, the kind of existential threat facing the the planet and all of us on it is ever present for colleagues that are working in Friends of the Earth. So I think the the content of the work that people are doing is very challenging and yeah. rest is necessary for people to be able to continue as be and be as effective as they can be and they want to be. So we are hearing from staff and we're we're capturing all of this in the review. I was talking to a colleague the other day who was saying if you have the Friday off, there's just more processing time. He said he's really noticing that on a Monday, he's just coming in with a different level of recharge and a different mindset. And he said, I just feel like Mondays for me are just a whole different thing from coming in feeling still slightly depleted and catching up from the weekend to coming in kind of firing on all cylinders mm. um, for a Monday, just with those extra few hours of being able to switch, rest, do whatever people wanted to do with that additional time. Well, I can't speak for both Andy and me, but you've certainly persuaded me. (laughs) Um, Thank you both very, very much. Victoria Benson from Gingerbread and Miriam Turner from Friends of the Earth. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll be exploring what makes the best possible trustee board and how to create one for your charity. But until then, thank you to our guests, Victoria Benson and Miriam Turner. 
and our producer, Navpal. <laughs>